It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the show that looks at the future and says the sun is always shining and the air smells like warm root beer and the towels are oh so fluffy. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, we don't have Lauren in the studio today. She's actually taking the day off, but she'll be back for future episodes, so don't worry about that. Uh, Now, Joe, I understand that you wanted to talk about a couple of movies, Um, something about uh, running quietly or... Silent Running. Silent, Silent way, Running. That's the way I know. That's the movie about the Jamaican bobsled team, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I yeah, hope they so. Had a, they had a really jaunty song. It was just <laughs> lots of fun. They had a great uh, Jamaican version of Talking Heads' Wild Wild Life. It's great. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, uh, no. wait. That that was a great movie. Uh, cool Running, oh, I think you're thinking of. Yikes. But yeah. um, Silent Running, it was a movie from the 70s. Oh, yes. Uh, the science fiction environmental horror kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, Bruce Dern. Um, and uh, one of the things that's featured in this movie is uh, it's got a bunch of spaceships that yep. are out in orbit around the planet Saturn. Mm-hmm. And they've got... Forests in them. In fact, they're forests the, in spaceships. They're the only place that has forests at that time because, as I recall, part of the plot of that movie is that all the plant life on Earth has died. Yeah, I think uh, I think 
part of the plot is that they're they're going to use these forests that are being preserved on spaceships to sort of reforest the Earth later. Right. Um, now, but then later on, there's there's a big conflict, but, but sure. that's just part of the premise. Yeah. And so that's a really interesting concept that you could have a forest that's not on the Earth. I mean, why not? Yeah. Yeah. Like the idea. What, of, what does a forest need? Well, there's quite a few things. Obviously, you need energy. You yeah. have to have some sort of energy coming into the system to provide the energy for the plants to grow. You would need uh, some form of nutrients for the plants so to consume. Like uh, carbon dioxide and water, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Probably some so other. Probably some kind of soil nutrients. Right. Yeah. Some sort of soil nutrients. I mean, even if you're going hydroponic, you have to have something, right? It's yeah. not, uh, you know, the water and, and sunlight or facsimile of sunlight wouldn't be quite enough. So yeah, you'd have to provide a lot of the same sort of things that you would find here on Earth. There's no reason, you know, automatically why you can't have a forest somewhere else, assuming that you have access to these basic resources. So how would we make a forest in space to to have one like this movie? Well, I'd say the answer to that movie could be another great movie, a Pauly Shore classic known as Biodome. By great movie, you mean one of the movies that has one of the lowest ratings from critics ever. Like, it often enters critics' worst films ever made list. You see it, like, often paired with, with the phrase, literally the worst movie of all time. Right, right. Which is, it's up against some stiff competition. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, yeah, I have, uh, I have not seen this film. Well, I actually haven't either, but I'm aware of the concept. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've certainly heard the pop culture references to it and I read the synopsis and that was enough for me. Uh, yeah, so, but the idea, biodome. So here the story is not about space. It's about constructing an artificial structure of some sort here on Earth to house various types of environments or biomes. The idea that we would have under one sealed roof where there's no exchange of um, of anything other than energy from the interior to the exterior. <laughs> so no exchange of matter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I say matter, then I have to also say like, matter in all its forms, right? Not just right. solid matter, but gases as well. So, or, and even liquids, you're not supposed to get water from outside. The idea is that it, everything is supposed to be completely self-contained and be sort of a miniature version of what the earth is. Because if you look at the earth, it has what we call closure from at least one aspect, which is that matter aspect. Yeah, the material aspect. So, the Earth has energy going in and energy coming out. It's got sunlight coming in, um, and and that's basically the source of all the life on Earth is is that energy. Maybe you could make an exception for like hydrothermal, like extremophiles, energy, like uh, bacteria that live at the bottom of the ocean. Right. Maybe, um, but but by and large, pretty much all life on Earth comes from the sun. Right. Um, and then you've got energy going out also, which is just radiant heat, basically. Yep, yep. And maybe you could say like the light that gets reflected back off of the Earth. Right. So the idea here being that that energy can come in and out of the system. But by and large, matter is pretty much what we have here. Yeah. And, and it's what we're going to have in the future. It's not going anywhere except, I mean, 
I suppose you could count like meteors and stuff like that, but that, that's a, an extremely tiny. Yeah, it's a minuscule. It's so so tiny that we couldn't even really express it in a meaningful percentage. Same thing for the matter that we shoot off into space. Mm-hmm. If we, for example, the fact that we landed a, a lunar lander on the surface of the moon and left a, a lunar rover on there, or the Mars rovers, like we're uh, we're cross pollinating. There's such. Yeah, that represents such an incredibly tiny amount of mass compared to the rest of Earth that you can safely say that matter is a closed system. Yeah, and th- this is why some people might uh, think about the Earth as a spaceship, right? That mm-hmm. it's uh, it's something that's traveling through space and it's it's materially contained. Well, how small do you think we could make a materially contained system? So in other words, we would have to create some form of system that would have regenerative life support on it. Yeah, for life. I left that part out. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you could just have like an asteroid hurtling through space. But right. if we wanted to live somewhere, how small could that materially contained system be? Could it be smaller than a planet? Could it be small enough to, say, be something that we could launch? So in other words, could we have a ship kind of like the ones that are in silent running, but ones that derive most of their life support from the forests that are on board that ship, as opposed to being a preservation method, this would actually be a life support system. Right, uh, because you could think about the ecosystems that we have here on Earth as a sort of life support system for this spaceship that we live on, the planet. Mm-hmm. Um we get all the material energy we need from it, so the chemical energy we get from food, mm-hmm. um, and it recycles our waste in a way that doesn't just, like, accumulate and kill us. Right, right, which, I mean, obviously, these are these are intrinsic for life to work, right? You, if yeah. you didn't have this kind of um, symbiotic relationship between multiple organisms and ecosystems, then life would not be possible for any prolonged time. It would eventually, it would end up creating toxins that would kill itself, uh, unless it's somehow adapted to be resistant to those toxins. So, uh, it's, it's by studying the earth where we can learn more about how these different systems work with each other that allow us to kind of hypothesize about regenerative life support systems, which is going to be absolutely necessary if we ever want to explore space on any meaningful level beyond just the uh, immediate surroundings. Right. Well, I mean, supplies run out, don't they? Yeah. They, I mean, if we're, if we're going to load up a spaceship and travel to a distant star, um, how much oxygen can you pack to breathe? Yeah. How, how much food can you can or dehydrate water. to take with you? Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, if you're talking about long-term exploration, you're going to have to find a way to make the molecules that you take with you work more than once. Right. And this is absolutely important because, of course, the further away you go, the more you have to take with you. The more you take with you, the heavier your ship is. The heavier mm-hmm. your ship is, the more fuel you make you or you need so that you can get to where you're going. The more fuel you need to get to where you're going, the heavier your ship is. It becomes this really cyclical problem. So it's absolutely imperative to find a solution to it. Okay, so we're imagining this spaceship that has um, bioregenerative capacity. Right. It has an environment that takes care of its own matter, that feeds itself and recycles its own waste. Has anybody ever actually done an experiment to see if we can build something like this in a – Obviously, it would have to be sort of in a in a sealed, closed experimental chamber 
to simulate what it would be like to be in a spaceship? Uh, the answer to that question is yes. Several yeah. people have attempted to do this. And in fact, in the- fact I already knew that. But, <laughs> um, Spoiler. Well, that's okay. I, I actually knew that silent running wasn't about a Jamaican bobsled team. So uh, <sighs> we're feel betrayed. Peek behind the curtain. Um, yeah. No, the, the, there's lots of people who have tried this. And in fact, the early stages were well before we got to a point where we were going to seal someone into a room and say, have fun breathing. Uh, <laughs> it was because because we had to prove certain things were actually possible. For example, the direct relationship between breathing out carbon dioxide and having plants absorb that and release oxygen. No one was really sure if we could create an artificial environment where that would become a, a viable uh, possibility because we knew that that was the the actual process of uh, respiration and uh, the relationship between plant life and and uh, animal life, but we weren't sure that we could leverage that. And so there were a lot of experiments early on before we got to even this sort of enclosed space that were necessary. But that led to more extreme experiments. Yeah, the first I've heard of, the first person I've heard of to propose this idea is uh, an old friend of ours, uh, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. Yes. You remember that name? Tsiolkovsky, the yeah. The guy behind the space elevator idea, yep, right? Yep. Um so he was a uh he was a Russian what scientist. Do you call him yeah. genius. Yeah, he was a, he absolutely was, a genius. He, he was idea box. Yes. Um he was a a Russian da Vinci. And in, in 1903, he had this paper, The Exploration of Cosmic Space by Means of Reaction Devices. So that, that sort of proposed that you could put humans and plants in a, in a uh, symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. to sustain space exploration. And uh, the, the Soviets, because at the time that we're talking about, uh, where the space race comes into play, it was the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviets were very much interested in exploring this in a very real way, not just did they did they build some kind of crazy bunker? <laughs> of course they did. They, <laughs> of course they, they built they a bunker. Built, they built three of them, in fact, or really they built one, and then they kept on uh, expanding the project. The uh, original one was really to explore a bioregenerative life support system, specifically for cosmonauts, which probably would come into play for something like a lunar colony or a Martian colony down the line. Uh, be really useful for some place like that. Uh, and, uh, it was, um, originally a 12 cubic meter space that could hold one person, hold and support one person. And, uh, at that time it was a sealed chamber and they had a second chamber that was connected to it via air ducts that contained a, spe- a special kind of algae in it. And that algae would end up generating the oxygen necessary for the person inside to breathe. They called this a system that achieved 20% closure, meaning that uh, 20% of the needs of that human being were met by the actual environment itself. However, 20%, that's small potatoes, right? They, well, you still, the 80% of your needs. Obviously not good enough. Yeah. So they, they still needed to have food and water brought into the person because there just, there was no way of, of recycling the water necessarily at that point or, uh, there, and the algae, while, uh, useful, was not tasty. Wasn't yeah, really I was going to say, I'd imagine that while I'm sure you can sustain human life eating only algae, that's got to take a psychological toll. Yeah, I'm not sure how, when you say sustain, I think maybe you'd stay alive, but you wouldn't <laughs> want to keep being alive. <laughs> like, I don't know that, I don't know that health-wise it would be a very wise uh, uh, choice over a long term. But at any rate, uh, they were able to boost that up to between 80 and 85 percent 
closure. And they did that through creating water recycling systems. Now, water recycling systems are incredibly important in space exploration today. In fact, if you read about the water recycling systems aboard the International Space Station, they are phenomenal. They're capturing water in just about every way you can imagine and then recycling it. So that would become something that continues to be important, and we'll probably chat a little more about that later. Yeah, now, the, these early stages of the uh, Soviet BIOS project, that's yeah. what it was called, they were in the 1960s, right? Right, mm-hmm. And so a few years after the first uh, experiment, they decided to expand it a little bit. They ended up um, creating a, a, a slightly more sophisticated BIOS project. Uh, uh, system. They added a second chamber, which they called the phytotron, mm. and uh, this was allowing the the person inside the the main chamber to grow higher levels of plants, mainly wheat and a few other vegetables were possible. And the idea was that this way they could get more of their food from that closed system as well as the oxygen that they needed to breathe. And because they're recycling more of their water, they could didn't need to replenish water as frequently. So that ended up being a, a pretty big uh, advance in the BIOS uh, approach. But then they decided to go all out with BIOS 3. BIOS 3, 1972, right? Yep. 1972 cost 1 million rubles, which at that <laughs> time was about 1 million U.S. dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, it was an uh, underground, underground bunker. So already – Pretty exciting. All right. Uh, well, you, but maybe bunker is misleading because you don't usually think of a bunker as being um, like sealed, stainless steel, hermetically casing. sealed. Yeah. Um, so what what they're trying to do here is what we were just talking about is to seal off all exchange of gases. Now you can. It's hard to do this perfectly. In fact, we we still can't really do it perfectly. Right. But they they were trying to do the best they could to make sure uh, air wasn't getting in or out. They also wanted to prevent any sort of pathogens from passing through and either making the the well, the cosmonaut equivalents because this really was for the the cosmonaut program, although the I don't think that's necessarily what they called the people who were inside this uh BIOS. But anyway, they wanted to limit any pathogen exchange. So they would also hold these experiments chiefly in the winter, which cut down a lot of it. And also after the first experiment, they decided to increase the air pressure slightly on the inside of this um, this this hermetically sealed metal box. You can think of it. It's a huge box. I mean, comparatively speaking. But uh, they tried to increase the air pressure so that that would also keep pathogens out by, you know, it's kind of pressing outwards. Oh, yeah, as positive pressure things exactly. aren't trying to get in. Exactly. So that was, you know, really important because they didn't want that to end up um, compromising the experiment. Uh, it was actually 14 by 9 by 2.5 meters in size, which is about 315 cubic meters of space, and had four compartments. Uh, each compartment had a doorway that could lead out to the outside world that could be opened within about 20 seconds in case of emergency, although none of those doors, to my knowledge, were ever needed. No one ever needed to escape the BIOS 3. But, I mean, it was important that they had that, obviously, in case yeah. something did go catastrophically wrong. Um, each of the doors also had a seal oh, on no, it. No, they're doing a screening of Biodome. <laughs> yeah. Now, the BIOS 3 uh, program was uh, fortunately over by the time Biodome <laughs> came out. Um, but, yeah, they each of the doors also had rubber gaskets so it would seal against the 
um, the doorway. That way you could actually seal off one compartment from the other three compartments. And originally, um, one compartment was used for just the crew. That's the crew's work and living quarters. Uh, the other three compartments were meant for, well, two of them were originally were phytotrons where they could grow food. And the, th- uh, and the third one was for algae. Now, it's important noting something that's a little bit odd about this environment because using phytotrons, they're using artificial light yeah. to sustain uh, the, the plants they're growing. Which makes perfect sense because if you're going out in space, then you're pretty much – you're going to have to create artificial light. You're just – especially if you're traveling further out of the solar system and you're not able to angle your ship so that you can harness the sun's energy mm-hmm. for your to, – to you know feed your plants, to give your plants the energy they need to grow. So it – for the purposes of a, a program that could eventually, at least in theory, be ported over to space exploration, it made perfect sense that they had to use artificial lighting. Uh, that is something else that we'll talk about a little bit later, too, when we talk about the pros and cons of this approach, uh, or at least I'll, I'll be able to chat about it a little bit. But the other interesting thing I thought was that after the first experiment, they decided that the third chamber where they had put the algae – uh, was really need, it needed to be converted over to higher plants that in fact three chambers with higher plants would provide enough oxygen for the entire crew uh, but it, more importantly would also provide enough food because they found out that just with two compartments and the algae there there wasn't enough food being produced enough edible material being produced for the crew to just you know sustain themselves on that mm. and there was still some um there's still some issues with the food, as I as I understand, Joe. <laughs> well, I mean, there there are a lot of issues with food when you're talking about trying to create a system that's closed to outside material interference. Uh, for one thing, um, we don't always think about this, but when you're growing food, not all of the material that grows is edible. Right. I mean, what do you so? Let's say you're trying to grow wheat. Mm-hmm. I mean, a huge part of the wheat plant is not the grain that's delicious. It's this stalk junk right well, what are you going to do with that yep um so that that presents a problem um so you could try to say like breed wheat that has a shorter stalk or something like that but you're still going to be left with um these problems of uh, materials that are hard to deal with right. in this environment because you can't eat them and you don't want to just throw them away you know because right. they're part of your material wealth uh, and, and so that's one problem. Another problem, <laughs> uh, not really a problem, but in this particular experiment, you know, they didn't achieve perfect closure from the outside because they had to import, as I'm to understand, some canned meat because, uh, because they the were Siberian Soviet. participants, uh, would not go without their, their canned meat. Yeah. Mm-mm. Good old mm-hmm. canned meat. Uh, they had 60, yep. they had 63 square meters. Where the, for growing space, that, that's how much space there was set aside for growing, which is about 678 square feet. And they found that that was enough to supply them with all the oxygen they would need the th- for the three crew members. There, there was only enough room for three people. Um, and they did this experiment three times. And, um, uh, so it's not like this was an enormous space, but then typically your spacecraft tend to have fairly small crews as well. So again, it's not like it's that, um, that far off from the way the space exploration race went. So mm-hmm. it made sense from that perspective. Now, granted, this does mean that you would have to dedicate a certain amount of space in your spacecraft for growing things. And that alone is, you know, that's a huge consideration, obviously. 
right? I mean, space is, is the space within a spacecraft is at a premium. Space outside of a spacecraft, not so much. There's a lot of it. But inside a spacecraft, not so much. There's, <laughs> there's quite a little bit of it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Joe, for backing me up on that one. <laughs> he was grinning at me. So I, I was just thinking about space uh, and how it's inherently funny. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, it's always funny when you're talking about because we are using the same word for to describe the the amount of area around you within a spacecraft as well as the region that's outside the spacecraft. Mm-hmm. So there gets to be a little bit of confusion of terms. But anyway, uh, what was interesting, at least according to a paper that we both read. Uh, yeah, we want to give a shout out to this. It's an older paper. We're using it for historical information. Sure. So it was uh, from the journal Bioscience. It's called uh, BIOS 3, Siberian Experiments in Bioregenerative Life Support. Uh, and that's by Salisbury, Gittleson, and Lisovsky. Uh, And uh, so uh, that's where a lot of our history on this is coming from. Yeah. According to that paper, the outcome was pretty interesting. The crew uh, reportedly suffered no ill effects, at least not physically, uh, due to being uh, put up in this little chamber for extended periods. Uh, You know, they held up. They held up all right. And um, they did see that the microflora on the skin, mucous membranes, and the intestines of the people who were inside the crews that were inside these uh, the, the BIOS uh, experiments, they changed significantly. However, there were no pathological effects, meaning that no one got sick from it. However, it's just one of those things that you look at the skin and you're like, well, things have definitely uh, <laughs> changed. One of the qualifiers there is yet. Um, yes. One of the things that we don't really know is what the long-term effects of having changes to the, uh, the flora. flora, you know, flora that inhabit our body. So like microflora on the skin, but also say like gut flora. Right. What happens when um, a long-term environmental change, say a trip on a spacecraft, fundamentally changes your gut flora? Is that going to cause you illness or, or damage in the long run in digestion. Right. Because these, these guys, uh, and women, there were, there was a, at least one woman in this experiment and one of the three experiments, um, they were in the, this isolation for like months at a time, but a true space exploration mission could last, last several months up to several years, up to even longer, depending on how far out we're talking and how fast we're going. So it's that's definitely something that we still don't know the answers to because, you know, we've only got limited amount of data. The other interesting outcome that I saw in that experiment was that they said the quality of the air, food, and water remained unchanged during the entire experiment. So you didn't have any deterioration of the quality of water or food or air uh, despite the fact that it remained sealed for months at a time. So that's kind of interesting. But that's not the only experiment we've ever seen with uh, trying to seal people away <laughs> and recreate uh, in ecological environments on Earth, right? Uh, no. In fact, there was an extremely high-profile experiment um, that was known as the Biosphere 2. Wait, wait, wait hold, on, hold on, Joe. What happened to Biosphere 1? Uh, that's a little joke. Uh, well, actually, it's not a joke. It's deadly serious. Biosphere one is this old planet Earth. That's right. Uh, because the concept of the biosphere, we haven't always had this. You know, it, it's a more recent idea, actually, that, oh, yeah, everything that we have on Earth, it, it's a closed contained system that's mm-hmm. self-sustaining based on feedback loops of energy and, and material use. Right. So Earth is our biosphere one. 
can we reproduce an Earth that's sealed materially to the outside environment? They sort of tried to do that with, with the BIOS experiments in Russia, but as we said, they, they had like, um, energy coming in, you know, uh, they had the, the artificial lighting. Sure. And they had, uh, they had potted meat. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, that, then, um, you know, the intent on that was to create this regenerative life support mm-hmm. system, but not to mimic actual environments you would discover on Earth. Right. So the one, uh, the Biosphere 2 was a project that was based in Oracle, Arizona. Yeah. And out in you, the desert, if you see it, it's gigantoid. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's like a couple football fields big, um, and it encompassed, uh, I think it was seven different, yep, seven uh, different yeah, environments. Yeah, so it had uh, it had savanna, mm-hmm. um, it had desert. It was actually it was like a fog desert, which is uh, like the Atacama Desert in okay. South America. So gotcha. that's a uh, a desert with, that's not necessarily a hot desert, but like right. a, a it's it's defined it's defined by its level of dryness. Really, yeah. the fact that there's not a you know you, you it's precipitation that defines a desert, yeah. not the temperature. Um, so th- there was the the fog desert, um, and then it had an ocean with a coral reef. It had uh, freshwater and saltwater marshes, mm-hmm. um, and then it had just like intensive agriculture sections and. One thing that was interesting was that these little micro farms in there apparently were very productive. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Uh, and then it had tropical rainforests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, they, they just had like the human habitats. Right, where right. Where the people live. And there were eight people living yeah, the, in this thing? Well, so there were a couple of experiments. Um, so the, the project, in a lot of ways, has been regarded as a failure. And... One of the reasons is that it costs two hundred million dollars, and yeah, expensive. Um, <laughs> and there were a lot of controversies once the project was underway. Well, what was the actual purpose of this project? Because I mean, obviously, well, the, the BIOS one was about creating a life support. Oh system. yeah, so this was not as narrowly focused on space exploration mm-hmm. as the uh, the Russian BIOS experiments were. Uh, a lot of this was about getting a better understanding of the ecosystems on earth. Gotcha. Um, and so whereas the 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 bios system was very stripped down. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, what what's the bare minimum we can put in here and keep people healthy? Mm-hmm. Uh you know, we can grow like these eight plants or whatever. Um and 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 we can survive on that. Here they were trying to create sort of rich closed systems so right. it was still open to energy closed to matter but they brought in all kinds of plants all different kinds of animals yeah these. like 3800 species yeah. in total um and so obviously there that's not as practical in the near term in terms of space exploration sure. now maybe maybe in the far future you could have a really rich you know, forest and, and all in deserts and stuff on a spaceship, but that's not very practical in the near term. Sure. I, I like the idea of a science fiction series where, uh, there are seven ships carrying the ver- various ecosystems and the story follows the poor jerks who drew the desert ship. <laughs> or who drew the Antarctica ship. Which would that's be desert. A, that's still oh, that's desert. That's true, yeah. That would be one okay. of the desert ones. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, so it'd be these or guys who, who like drew the drew the bottom of the ocean ship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> just just constantly wearing scuba gear. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, I'm sorry. Getting back to the Biosphere Two actual project, erupting so you, you, volcano ship. You said that a lot of people viewed it as a failure. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Um. So 
there were a couple of experiments. Uh, the first uh, experiment went from 1991 until 1993, and this was, in a lot of ways, a really impressive undertaking mm-hmm. because their goal was to seal hum- eight human beings into the Biosphere 2 for uh, this long period of time and, and see if they could sustain life and keep these ecosystems healthy and, and learn what we could from them. So they were farming, they were you know studying what was happening in the ecosystems in mm-hmm. terms of the, the chemistry of the atmosphere and all this stuff like that. The, one of the things is that apparently during this first experiment, the CO2 levels would just go up and down wildly and they could just watch well, you know, the, the feedback on what was happening. So mm-hmm. I'm sure that was a little bit scary. Uh, um, sure, yeah. I mean, if carbon dioxide levels go up too high, of course, that becomes you know, toxic to yeah. us. That would... um, and, of course, they didn't have it as bad as you might if you were in a spaceship like this. Sure, I mean, at yeah. At least they, they could, can leave. Exactly. If, if um, worst case scenario, they could open up the door. <laughs> yeah. And uh, part of the uh, controversy about what was going on is that um, apparently uh, there was some suspicion that uh, – at least one member had been like let out of the experiment and then let back in for medical reasons. Um, and, and you weren't supposed to do that. Another, uh, an issue was that apparently there were factional disputes between <laughs> the, uh, people who were living in the biosphere that there, there were did, some political issues. Did it go inside. all Lord of the Flies? <laughs> no, 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 no. There were no murders. Um, okay. but, uh, apparently not everyone got along. They okay. had, disagreements over the management and and the the way research was done within the facility and these became very pronounced and that there were people who were like not on speaking terms See, and, it's odd you would and, think that they the the uh, methodology would have been agreed upon before you had actually set foot inside the biosphere <laughs> well i mean it's a long experiment sure it's part of the problem but one of the things that's interesting is that Research is coming back now on, well, we can actually look at the way these people were behaving mm-hmm. within the biosphere, mm-hmm. uh, biosphere two, uh, to study what might happen to astronauts on sure. a long mission because right. they're going to be in the same circumstances. I mean, it, it's, it's probably easy to get along some, with somebody for a month or something because, well, you know, you're a professional and you, you know, you're, but after a certain period of time, you know, just feelings creep in. Well, especially it, like when you talk about uh, the astronauts and the space exploration missions, even going on a prolonged stay aboard the International Space Station, uh, everyone has very specific duties and mm-hmm. they've undergone years of training so that they are able to carry those duties out under what most of us, I think, would consider to be really harsh circumstances. And I imagine that sort of discipline helps a lot because you can focus on that sort of thing. If we're talking about eventually getting to a point where we're looking at colonizing other planets, then we've, we've moved beyond the people who are aboard the spacecraft have undergone years of training and they have very specific duties to any poor schlub who, yeah. <laughs> who gets put aboard this ship. And eventually, you know, if you don't have that discipline, then I would imagine that also complicates things. Yeah. Another problem with the first mission is just lots of the animals died, you know, like pollinating insect, like the bees died. Mm. Uh-oh. Yeah, that's yeah, a huge that, problem. That's not that's good. That's a they, huge they problem all, that yeah, we're going on right uh, now. They had some stowaways, too. They had, like, an invasive ant species mm. that I think wasn't supposed to be in there, but they ended up sort of taking over that insect niche. Gotcha. Um, and so, uh, but... 
all of these things are interesting because we're learning to what to watch out for if we were to actually launch something like this in the future. Right. And and um, clearly the the Biosphere 2 was not designed ever to be a kind of space uh, no, colony it was at not all. designed to be launched into space. Right. right or or even erected <laughs> um, say on a on a place like the moon or on Mars right. because it wasn't designed to withstand that kind of harsh environment. No, though a lot of things about its design are super smart. Um, sure. Like one of the things is so like you had heating and cooling throughout the day because of uh, the sunlight, mm-hmm. the variable sunlight, and that would cause expansion of the gases inside. So what do you do about that in the bubble? Right. Um, so I, I they had some kind of r- really complex system of, of like – Tanks. Uh, yeah, tanks that would absorb the uh, expanding gas. And gotcha. So, that, so you, could vent cool. it, you could vent it into the tanks so that you maintain the same pressure inside the dome. And then when it starts to cool down, you could start to pull gas back in from – you haven't exchanged gases. It hasn't gone to the external atmosphere but you're able to maintain a uh, a level pressure within the dome itself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another problem with the first mission is that there was a little bit of an oxygen. Uh oh. Yeah. It um, turned out that the had, oxygen levels were decreasing. Yeah. They had unexpected uh, decreases in oxygen concentration. Yeah. If you're if you're bio exchangers, your plants and your animals are just not balanced right, and you're producing too much carbon dioxide. You should see those numbers going up as your oxygen comes down, but right. they weren't really seeing that. So it turned out what the problem was was they had like concrete mm-hmm. structural features inside the building that were just sequestering gases. And so th- that was causing major problems for the atmospheric composition inside the dome. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that, it, there were there were stories about they you know they couldn't concentrate because <laughs> right. they're having. Uh, well, oxygen yeah, I mean, problems and, and so that's the thing is that sleeping trouble, you, you, know. you would think if you see oxygen levels going down and carbon dioxide levels are not also going up, you would, the first thing you would think is that, oh, we've got a leak. Something is leaking out and for some reason carbon dioxide is not, you know, increasing. But if it's leak, why is the oxygen not going down further? Why is it, why? I, I don't know how you'd explain it. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'd just be confused. Right. I think. Well, I would uh, definitely be confused due to the lack of oxygen, but I, I would hope that someone would have figured it out. And, and of course, like you pointed out, like it, it was the actual structure itself absorbing carbon, um, which, you know, you could argue, hey, maybe we could figure out a way of doing that as a carbon sink <laughs> um, <laughs> right but, now. But yeah, but despite all of uh, the controversies and all the things that did go wrong, they they did stay in there for two years. Um, they lost a good bit of weight. Uh, they went on a, a low calorie diet while they were in there to live on the the food that they farmed. Mm-hmm. Um, though I, I read that there were apparently some health benefits of that, like you know they had good blood pressure and stuff. Interesting. <laughs> But uh, there actually was a second mission. Okay. Yeah, a second mission. Um, in 1994, another group went in there to try it again, but that mission was cut short, uh, mm. basically because of management disputes and, and the control of the facility changing hands, basically. Wow. And so the Biosphere 2 left a bad taste in everybody's mouth. It, it kind of tainted this area of research because of all the controversies and things that went wrong right um and and the disputes and especially i think the 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 people the people aspect the drama right it had know? it had nothing to necessarily to do with the science it had more to do with some of the 
I mean, there was, I'm sure there were some scientific concerns as well, but yeah. majority of the concerns arose because humans are human. Yeah. And, and sometimes we get a little wacky. Um, and so it's weird that it's this thing that mainly is remembered as something that just went really wrong. Like right. we, you know, it, it was a failed experiment. And in some ways that's correct, but we also learned a lot from it. Sure. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is that we're using that kind of information to try and design new types of technologies, new systems, not only to study the, you know, the various ecosystems, but also with this in mind, just like the Soviets did, you know, half a century ago, hmm. the idea of using this as some sort of regenerative life support system. And it, it, you know, we've seen this kind of fuel a lot of research in various fields, things like genetic modification, where you start to look at ways where you can genetically modify plants so that more of the plant is edible or that you start looking at the interrelationship between uh, plants and animals where maybe, you know, you have animals included in your in whatever biosphere type thing you would have let's say for space exploration, you include certain animals, not because you plan on using them as a food source, but because of their interrelationship with some of the other stuff you're, that's in the dome. So for example, the food that you're growing, maybe there's a lot of it that you can't eat, but this other animal can eat. Right. And then that animal might be a food source for yet another animal that you could then, that humans are eating, you know? Right. That leads to, um, one of the questions I want to talk about. So like, sure. what are the questions that are involved in designing a regenerative biological system to keep life alive if we're traveling in space or colonizing another planet? Um, one of the important questions is, well, do you go for simplicity or complexity? Right. Um, so simplicity, what are the advantages there? Well, when you have simplicity in a system, you have a lot of control. Yep. Uh, so if you want to send people to Mars and all they have with them is algae, you can do that. You can survive on algae, uh, chlorella vulgaris. That's yep. what they used in the early BIOS experiments. Yep. Um, and that'll, that'll give you air. You can eat it and, and you can, you're ready to go, but it doesn't have all of these benefits that complexity would provide, right? Sure. So, yeah. you know, not only just the psychological benefits. But if you're um, talking long term, having... you need you need a lot more complex uh, materials than what one food source is going to give you. Yeah. Right? Um, but then again, when you have all that complexity, you encounter some of the problems that we saw with, like, the interaction between different species mm. in Biosphere 2, where you had lots of things just dying and it's hard harder to manage a complex ecosystem you, you and also, to anticipate how it's going to behave it's more unpredictable and not only that but it requires more energy to support so yeah. for example if you've got if you've got a fairly diverse uh, amount of life forms on whatever you know vessel you are in so that you have this kind of uh, luxury of choice and the complexity is, is the supportive ecosystem. Even if you figured it all out where everything's playing along nicely and you don't have to worry about, well, shucks, this one life form that we brought on board that we thought was going to be really beneficial turns out to be destructive to this other one that we didn't even, you know, we didn't even understand the relationship that would happen when these two things came aboard the same in the, into the same system. Mm -hmm. Even if you were able to avoid all of that, you would still have to pour energy into the system to have it continue to work, right? So uh, 
you know, there's an energy sink here too that you have yeah. to consider. Like, hey, where is that energy coming from? How do you generate it? Uh, how do you regenerate energy? Are you able to harness things like solar energy, uh, you know, and other, other considerations? That's a big one. There, there's something I wonder also. I mean, I wonder if a complex enough ecosystem just displays emergent behavior, meaning that even if you put all the same numbers of the same species in a test module and ran it a bunch of times, you still wouldn't be able to predict what would happen the next time. And on top of that, you know, we have this other problem, which is right now we can't we can't really simulate gravity on a on a large scale. Yeah, so, that's a big one. <laughs> yeah, there's there are a lot of species that may not do so well in a microgravity environment. So like the pygmy goats you're using to get the goat cheese that you're going to use to make the, you know, pizza that it right. takes you 8 months to put together. Yeah, uh, I just have this image floating. of I just have this milk image of them now. Every time I milk the goat, I fly across to the other side of the, <laughs> of the bio, biosphere. Oh, like goat jets, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Goat-powered in-craft propulsion. Isn't yeah, that, that. that deleted scene from Gravity? But uh <laughs> yeah, the, the I mean these are we're laughing about, it, but these are actual problems obviously. Like if you wanted yeah. to pursue this, even if you were able to solve all these other issues that we still don't fully understand, that you know, we could work a lot of this stuff out on Earth, right? We could do some more experiments akin to Biosphere 2 with very strict controls. And in fact, there are people who are working on things like that. We could do more of those and learn more about how these systems interact with one another before we were to incorporate it into any kind of spacefaring model. But even then, there are other things we have to worry about that we can't recreate here on Earth. Yeah. Um, an- another interesting question, I think, is what do you do with these uh, so-called deadlock substances? Mm. You know, that's when you're uh, producing molecules that you – I just don't know how to use this. You right. know, I can't reclaim this easily. Um, so in the BIOS experiments, you know, they'd say like, well, okay, so what do you do with like wheat stalks? Um, maybe right. at some point you're just going to have to like burn things. And then what do you do with the ashes? Uh, here's I, what I say. You use, use a, a high intensity plasma <laughs> to break them down to their constituent uh, atoms. Oh, and then I get you the plasma gasification. Plasma gasification. All you right. Use plasma gasification, and then you can at least uh, create a, a, a syngas fuel that you might be able to run generators on that will provide the light for everything else. Jonathan, you should email NASA about this. Yeah, I'm serious. That's a good idea. Well, the only problem is that, of course, you do eventually run out of matter. Yeah. <laughs> like you have to, you would have to restock. You, it's not like matter is magically making itself over and over and over again. Every time you would do that, you'd be like, well. I'm just using this as syngas and then I'm venting off anything that is toxic and I can't, you know, use that anywhere. Eventually I, I mm. am using this as a fuel source, not just a regenerative life support system. Oh, it's actually well, that fuel. Kinda, that kind of defeats the purpose of the biosphere, right? Which right. is to be just to be matter closed. Right. You not, would you would be that's not how to phrase you, it. Well, closed you would, to matter exchange. You, yeah, you wouldn't you would not have a hundred percent closure because you would actually have matter being reduced over time, right? So in the sense that you would no longer be able to use that. It's obviously you can't really create or destroy matter or all you can do is, you know, maybe convert it into energy. Um, but, or you're venting it off into space. So, yeah. so yeah, it would not, it would not work in a, a, a truly long term. Let's talk about like, we, we're shooting for another star system somewhere in the Milky Way. I mean, that would be, you know, you would eventually run out of fuel. Yeah. Um, we've talked about the psychological effects of, of having these plants around, uh, mostly in terms of eating, <laughs> you know, like, 
It's just got to be psychologically better for you to be able to eat carrots and potatoes and stuff like that than just algae. Right. Um, but I imagine there's a psychological effect to having a certain kind of environment too, right? I would imagine so, I mean, yeah, yeah. Just from personal experience, I mean, if I haven't seen a tree in a long time, I, I get kind of depressed. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm the same way. If I haven't seen uh, a humpback whale in a long time, <laughs> I start thinking I need to go to either Alaska or Hawaii, depending upon the season. But a lot of tree deficiency can be made up for with pygmy goats. Yes, if you stack three pygmy goats end to end, <laughs> yeah. and then just tell one of them to just kind of sway a little bit as mm-hmm. if there were a breeze, everything's cool. Actually, you know what? Uh, videos of pygmy goats definitely do help me with my tension. So maybe there is something to what you're saying. But If one of those fainting goats falls in a spaceship and no one's there to hear it, does uh, it make a sound? I think if one, I think it just floats, right? It just, oh, you're right. Because we still fall. have, we don't have artificial gravity yet. So yeah. it, it would, would just if be. If one a, of them floats, but that wouldn't make, oh, it would, it would just you, be you've a, destroyed the, the <laughs> oldest riddle on earth. It would just be a stiff goat <laughs> flying by, <laughs> not moving. Okay. We're obviously getting a little loopy here, but no, this was a cool thing to talk about because you, you know, we have direct evidence of, of, you know, we have the experiments that people have conducted to varying degrees of success. There's also the, the Mars One initiative where they're talking about having a Mars colony by, was it like 2030 yeah. or something? Oh, well, we are not done with biosphere research. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be a lot more of this research on Earth before we can really instantiate this kind of system in space. Well, and that's, that's part of what the Mars One colony would be doing. Like they, they talked about putting people in, uh, you know, kind of a sequestered environment, not only to simulate what it would be like on Mars, but to, as a proof of concept that in fact, these habitats they plan on making under the surface of Mars would actually support life. They're planning on using hydroponics, right? Yeah. They're okay. using mainly hydroponics and that would be the uh, source of the oxygen, the ongoing regenerative life support system for the people there. So that's another good question is, is do you go hydroponics or do you go soil? Obviously hydroponics is a lot easier. Yeah. But the question is whether or not it actually will produce the right amounts of not just oxygen, but food. Well, so, yeah. And the questions about, um, I, I think there are questions about whether the kind of soil we have on earth helps produce healthy gut flora. Yeah. That's humans. also another good question. Cause uh, again, these are questions that we don't have answers to because yeah. it, it takes Before so much. Before we leave earth, we've got to figure out why earth is good. Well, it's just stuff that takes so much time to answer, right? It's not like, it's not like you could run an experiment in a week and have a definitive answer. These are things that we're talking long term effects on people. And that requires a level of commitment that's difficult to do. So maybe this Mars One thing, I'm still very skeptical about whether or not they'll reach their goal. But my hope is that even if they never launch off of Earth, that if they're very much sincere in going forward with their plan, they will at least do some experiments here on Earth that could end up being really beneficial down the line. So... That's my hope. I mean, really, I hope that I'm just proven totally wrong and that they've got everything together and they actually manage to do what they say they're going to do. That would astound me and delight me. But Terraform um, Mars by 2018. Yeah. You know what? That's a good thing. We should actually mention that we do plan on doing an episode about terraforming yeah, at some point. Terraforming being a sort of larger scale version of what we're talking about. Instead of uh, taking a small bit of Earth and closing it up on the surface of the moon or Mars or a space station, why not just turn Mars into another Earth? 
Yeah, because we've done so well with this one. So uh, <laughs> that's just a little snark. I'm actually an optimist. Uh, yeah, guys, uh, well, th- this has been a fun conversation about this topic. And uh, we're going to end up obviously revisiting this in other episodes where anything where we're talking about long-term space exploration or terraforming, it'll come back into play. But uh, we really wanted to tackle this one mostly to uh, to kind of dare one another to actually endure the Polly Shore movie. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to you on whether either of us actually um, does that. Or maybe Lauren will... What's the future of Biodome sequels? <laughs> yeah. Not good, as it <laughs> turns out. Um, uh, but yeah, maybe we can convince Lauren to watch it uh, while, while she's away. So guys, uh, remember, go to fwthinking.com. That's the website where we've got all the videos, the podcasts, blog posts, uh, articles, things that are really cool, everything about the future that you want to know. Go visit that site. And remember, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We have the handle FWThinking. Come join the conversation. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what you want to, what you're excited about in the future. Let us know. We want to talk about it. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. 
Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.